No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Talking Bass in PDX as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark and I'll be your host. Welcome aboard everybody as we get underway. We'll be talking fishing and history on this podcast today. I do have a very special guest, but before we get to them, let me talk to you about Talking Bass in PDX, the podcast. The podcast is all about fishing in the Northwest and if you enjoy listening, Help us grow by telling your friends about the podcast and that we can be found on Spotify, Anchor, and I'm proud to say, now on iTunes. May I ask that if you enjoy the podcast, that you click on the link in the show notes that takes you to Anchor FM. Please click the support button and help offset some of the cost of the podcast. We are doing a little more traveling now and buying a little bit of equipment, so some help on the cost would be great. On this episode of Talking Bass and PDX, I will be hosting Bud Hartman Part 2 of the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club. Bud has lived in Portland for many years and sold tackle for several operations. He's also an original member of the Oregon Bass Club and will be telling us on one of the future podcasts how it got its name changed from Oregon Bass Club to Oregon Bass and Panfish Club. Like I said, Bud's been a member for well over 60 years. In fact, he's now an honorary life member. Bud also will be talking in this podcast about being president for 10 terms, but not all at the same time, and now he is the club historian. Bud's a big community supporter, and he'll be talking about some of the great seminars that he put on and some of the other things that he did to help the community. Bud's also a supporter of the right for warm water fish to exist in Oregon, and continues to defend their presence in Oregon waters every day. Bud's a longtime member of the Warm Water Champions, and on this episode, let's look back at the 1970s and 80s, maybe even a little into the 90s, as we meet up with Bud Hartman. And as a matter of fact, Bud is always teaching. See if you can find when he is teaching me about a new lure that's an old lure in this podcast. And now, here's Bud. All right, and on this episode of uh, Talking Bass and PDX, I'll be talking with uh, Bud Hartman. And, Bud, we've talked before on a previous podcast about your early days of fishing. On this broadcast, I'd like to talk about the 70s and the 80s and the growth of Oregon Bass and Panfish Club. Now, you were, at that time, you were president of the club, right, during some of those years? I became I became president in 1970 for my first term. Over the years I did 10 different terms. Never any two back-to-back. It was scattered out over a 20-30 year period. At the time I decided we ought to have a membership drive. So I was talking to board of directors at one time and I said what we ought to do is offer an incentive to our members if they sign up 10 new members in a given year, they will win a free fishing trip anywhere they want to go, and we'll take care of paying for it or doing whatever we have to do. All they have to do is submit the applications. 
Now, had the club been growing right along through yeah, the sixties and seventies, or some, to some extent? But we were we were kind of stable for a while. Yeah. If you look at some of the numbers, we were we were in the two three hundred range, something like that. Now, were these all pretty active members back these then? These were course? people that were willing to pay dues too. These were dues paying members. Now, as far as active is concerned, it's interesting, Don. You mentioned that because we had a lot of members that moved out of state over the years, job relocations, whatever it happened to be, family, etc. But yet they continued to mail in their dues because they liked getting our newsletter, our bulletin. And we had members as far as away as Miami. We had Miami. We had members in Philadelphia. We had members in my hometown of Baltimore. We had members in New York. And they maintained their membership. Even though they didn't do anything in the state of Oregon anymore, they liked belonging to the Oregon Bass and Panthers Club. So we had this membership drive. And I remember as the year went by, and I was president, and I at one of the board meetings later, like October or November, I said, you know, my goal has always been to get a thousand members in this club. I would love to have a thousand dues members because we were independent. We were not affiliated with BASS. We weren't affiliated with anybody. We were independent as a, as a nonprofit, 501c4 at the time. So anyway, Jack Webster, who had put together our bulletin. And let's talk a little bit about Jack and his position because the story becomes yeah. much more... Jack, Jack Webster was a uh, retired Corps of Army engineer guy, uh, worked out of, the, out of the Vancouver, Washington office, a pretty knowledgeable individual. But anyway, he was, our, he was our print specialist. So he had a way of putting together our bulletin for our, the thing that we mailed out, our monthly newsletter, if you will, and uh, got the club to finance the equipment and whatnot. And this is old school to where we were using a mimeograph machine and having to hand mimeograph cut stencils and everything else, and his wife would do that. And Jack would print these things, and they would hand staple them and collate them and whatnot and put stamps on them and put labels on them. And so this them. was a total manual process. This was total manual, okay. and, and it, it took weeks to do it. So it, it was a full-time job just to do that, to gather the information. Florence would retype it, cut the stencils, blah, blah. A lot of us would make contributions to it of information, fishing reports and so forth, but they did the, the mechanics of it. They made it. So back to your, back to the, so the, uh, uh, I'm drive. the membership drive. Back to the membership and drive. We're mailing out bulletins. And I said at this particular board meeting, I said, you know, I'd love like heck to put a push on it. Very end of this year, I've always thought I'd like to have a thousand dues paying members in this club. And we're getting close, guys. We gotta, we gotta get get out there and sell this club. And Jack says to me, he halted the board meeting, and he said, Hartman, you get a thousand members in this club, you'll print your own damn bulletin. I'm not going to do it anymore. I said, Wait a minute, what does that mean? And I asked the membership director at that time. I said, What are we up to? At that time, we had 817 members, <laughs> and that's the biggest we ever came, ever became, and. We stayed in the in the mega hundreds for a lot of time, for a lot of years, and what really broke us down, didn't really break us down, we had a lot of people that joined our club because we were one of a kind. We were the only one in Oregon at the time. And a lot of our people came to us and said, you know, we, we like this concept of competitive fishing. We'd like to have some contests and tournaments and things like that. 
Well, cable TV was just kind of really getting on a roll and whatnot back then in the 70s and early 80s. And Ray Scott and his BASS guys came aboard, and the next thing you know, here comes Bass Angler Sportsman Society and nationwide tournaments and big money events. And all of a sudden, those of us using boats with 10-horsepower motors and oars to row with instead of bow-mount electric motors. None of that was ever in vogue. All of a sudden, the industry, as we all know, exploded the popularity. What happened was a lot of clubs started forming out of a lot of our members. A lot of our people sprung off and started their own groups. And at the time that we got to this number, we were the only club like it in the state of Oregon. By last year, 2019, there are now 22 bass clubs in the state of Oregon. Wow. 22. And, and a lot of those have to have roots going back to exactly. Oregon. Exactly. A lot of them go back clubs. to our people, yes. And so in the 70s and 80s, and we're, we're getting into the 80s, uh, what were the, the, the fish-ins or the, the uh, events like? Were they very large events where you'd have a lot of people? We had, you know, we, there were times, well, it was interesting because we did a lot of them at that time based on the time of the year, seasonally, so to speak. We always knew that January or early February was a good time to go, believe it or not, perch fishing. Yellow perch in the winter, they were the first of the spawners of the warm water fish. They would come to the, to the shore, so to speak, come to the shallows first, earliest. And then we would go to a different critter for like March, and then different for April, and May would be maybe crappies, and June would be bass, would be a good one, and so forth. So we'd have these fish ends, as we call them, and we only did them once a month. And we always picked a different species, and we always tried to pick a piece of water to go fishing in close enough to the Portland metropolitan area, which is where most of our members were, so that people, if they wanted, if we wanted them to encourage them to come, they could make a half-day trip out of it. They wouldn't have to devote a whole weekend or a whole day. They could go for the morning and be home in the afternoon if they wanted. So we tried to do things within a 50-mile radius of Portland. And they were pretty successful. There were times we had as many as 40 or 50 people show up at a one-day event. And so I have seen a book that's been published out there. I believe that Jack Webster may have had something to do with it that were, and maybe it's 50 places within 50 miles. Fishing holes. Fishing yeah. holes. Yeah. And would you guys go and meet at places like that? Some of them, yeah. But with that book, when that book was put together, that book was put together with TriMet in mind. Because the Oregonian helped, the Oregonian newspaper helped fund that thing to get it published to begin with because Bill Monroe was heavily involved in it. Jack Webster wanted to make sure that he could, he could, with the help of our board of directors, could pick out 50 places to go fishing within a certain radius of the city of Portland that you could get to on mass transit. Oh. So all the bus stops and all the train locations and whatnot not, are listed there how to get to this piece of water by bus from okay. wherever you're coming. Because yeah. I do have a copy of that book, yeah. and, I, and I did not realize that it's that's all what transit, It's transit-oriented. And, and as a, as a long-time club member, uh, what was your favorite trip during those periods of time? Where did you like to go and take your family? Uh, I like to, to fish the Rock, the Rock Island area down at Oregon City. I also like to fish, oh, God, didn't go over there too much, but Cedar Oak Island, we fished there a bit. If I crossed the border into Washington, Lackamas Lake was always one of my favorites. I mean, we 
the boys could always catch fish. My sons could always catch fish over there. I could always catch bass. They could always be satisfied with bluegills and crappies and yellow perch and whatnot because they were younger. But uh, I don't know. I liked fishing up at, at up in the Columbia. I liked fishing up around uh, Cascade Locks. The uh, thing called Government Cove. Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with Governor Government Cove. When the Astoria Megler Bridge was built, when they did away with the ferry down there that many years ago, they needed a lot of basalt, big rock stuff the foundations for the footings of those bridge piers down there. They dynamited them out of that thing called Government Cove right up here east of Cascade Locks. A lot of people don't realize that. Not know that. But that's where all the mining was done to and barged that stuff down the Columbia River to the mouth of Astoria and they built the Astoria Mega Bridge. And what they left behind was that big lagoon up there uh-huh. full of water when it blew out all the basalt and it's a mecca for fishing right now. Now the club started traveling and, and going on some overnight trips and maybe yeah. even a few nights. Now, was that more in the 80s when that started? Yeah, probably. There were some that were there were some that were maybe a single overnight, but there, there became more and more long-term ones, too. We would do things like go to Richland over on the Snake River country and spend a week over there, for instance, or to Prineville and spend four or five days over there. Or go to even places like Crane Prairie and spend three or four days there. Did you have a favorite one of those that you always look forward to every year? Yeah, I think I think over the years, once I got talked into going, I think the Powder River arm of Brownlee Reservoir has always been got a warm spot in my angling heart. I mean, it has so much potential, and there are so many fish over there. And the, the biologists themselves, ODFW and Idaho Fishing Game, they think that it probably has the largest, healthiest population of warm water fish anywhere in the two states of Oregon and Idaho. It, the reservoir is 58 miles long from Brownlee Dam up to Farewell Bend, and in some places over 300 feet deep with shallows and every, all, all the accoutrements of a reservoir. Mm-hmm. And it probably has... I talked to Ray Temple about it one time, one of our former biologists, and he says they guesstimated there were about a half a trillion fish living in there. That is a tremendous number of yeah, fish. And, and, amazing. And, and I'm a member who has not gotten to go up there and fish. Oh. I have been to the reservoir, but I have not been to it, not fished it. You know, like you said, you've been president 10 years. 10 times. Over, over 10 times, over, you know, about 20 years. Yeah. And in... Among a many, many things that, that you bring to the club, and you don't talk about this very often. In fact, I, I don't know that you've ever talked about it. What do you think that the thing that you bring to the club is most important to you? Because you don't talk about yourself a lot. You talk a lot of things that you that other people have done. But what do you think that you've done that you're most happy or proud of that you did? Well, I, without sounding egotistical or patting myself on the back, I like to think that I've always been foremost and upfront and uh, in your face, their face, about the way the warm water fishery is treated in the state of Oregon. I like to think that I've always been one of those voices that has always been upfront and argued for the right of these fish to exist. And, and I've had other people from the cold water fishery as well. Uh, a guy who is well known in Oregon, Bill Bakke, member of um, Oregon Trout, 
member of Native Fish Society and whatnot. He and I have head-butted for years and years and years. And he said one time, and I've seen it written somewhere, he said one time, Bud Hartman and I do not agree on anything as far as fisheries are concerned, but I love to sit down and have a argument with him over a beer because both of us have our own views and he is a real gentleman about the way we handle things. So and that, that was that, a compliment. That is a, that is a very good compliment. Um, what do you enjoy most about the club? Now, you know, I'll, I'll give you my opinion just so that you'll know. I, I, I love sitting down with all of the members, with any of them, and just talking fishing. Yeah. But what, what's your favorite uh, thing about it? I, th- I think it's the, um, I agree with you, I think it's the camaraderie. I think it's the friendliness, the nature of our people. We hardly, we hardly see. I don't anyway, see a lot of animosity or or dis, or heated discussions between members about things. Fortunately, we may on the side talk politics, but we never talk politics in the meeting. We don't get arguing about Democrats and Republicans or about taxes or about this or that. We talk fishing, so to speak, and the environment and the out of doors. And did you have fun doing this, that, or another thing? There's just a lot of patting on the back camaraderie that goes on. And I like that. Friendly atmosphere. Friendly atmosphere. And now I haven't noticed over the past few years, but maybe you you have. Were you competitive in in some of the contests over the years? And did you go out and... I tried. I I fished fished the Blitzwine Hard Open a couple Mm -hmm. times, a bass tournament down at Ten Mile Lakes. I fished um, another one out of Silk Goose Lake one time with the Oregon Hog Hunters. I fished a challenge tournament at 10 Mile one time. Never never finished high in the things always. Guys were better than me or they knew better than me something, but I was a bass fisherman. But, but I got to thinking at the time, that's not really my forte. I mean, I like the thought of the competitive nature, but not to the extent where you don't want to share information, you don't want to tell anybody where you caught something, you don't you don't want anybody to know what you used, you don't want to spend a whole lot of money getting from here to there to find out that you're not winning anything. I, the whole the whole thing just left me cold. So I'm more of a family oriented, fun kind of a fisherman. If I can teach people when to, where to, how to, that's what I want to do. So that leads me right into the next question that I had for you. You know, there's not going to be another member that has been uh, in the club and around as long as you have. Yeah. Because there aren't any of the original left. Uh, and, I, and I hate to talk legacies with people because that's, that can get yeah. really drawn out. But do you think that over the years, and I have never heard this change, and I'm always so proud of it with the club, about how we want to teach people how to fish. Yeah. Do you think that your, um, the way you think has kept that going for all these years, along with other people, but do you think it's your strong belief in the way that the club runs? Do you think that you're, that, that that's part of what? I think, I think in some regards you're right. Some of our, some of our current members are willing to uh, pass on the lure, so to speak. I've long thought that, that and, and Russ Miata has complimented me, and he said, Hartman, you you have so much knowledge of of not being a smart ass, but you just so know much, you know so much from having been around the business and about the fisheries so many years, 
it's a shame not to document that somehow or to get it to where it passes on to people. And I said, well, over the years, I like to think I've done my part with clinics and seminars and in-store promos for manufacturers or just for fun or whatever. As long as I'm alive and as long as I can do that, hopefully I can pass on some of that those things that I've learned or things that we know will, will work. Um, I would hope there are people that follow behind me that will do the same. Yeah, I, I think that that is... Um I hope that that happens, and I believe that it will. I yeah. believe that there are people who are still in the club that, you know, years from now we'll be talking to them, and and they'll have carried that yeah. uh, that legacy forward, that tribal knowledge, as right. it were. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's a, a, an interesting thing that the club has stayed the course. Yeah, uh, we've we've gone different directions, yeah. stayed the course on being a teaching club. Yeah, and I think that that is something that we all should be very proud of. Um, and I, and I've noticed over the last few years that you're fishing more with other, other people on their boats and things of that nature. But when you're out in other, other folks' boats, um, are you still teaching and, and, and showing them little tricks of the trade? To some extent, I'm I'm learning a lot from them, but I, lately I've been doing a lot of my fishing with, as you know, our good friend, Bob Judkins. And Bob is a pretty good bass fisherman. But I think there's a lot of things he learns from me as well. And uh, Russ has, has kidded us both about it, especially if, if on those occasions that we... Bob is notorious for keeping score. He wants to know how many fish we've caught. And in those times when I have caught a few more than him on a given day from the back of the boat instead of the front of the boat, Russ always says, yeah, cowabunga, you know. I find. But that's not the whole point. The whole point is that we learn from each other and there are some things that I do or that I can pass on to them. I feel especially flattered when I start hooking some fish, for instance, and and Bob has said to me, not often, but it's happened often enough, you got any more of those things? Can I borrow one? You know, whatever. Yeah. And he used to jokingly say, I never carry too much tackle in the boat because when Bud's with me, if there's anything I ever need, he's got it in his bag. And, and Marcia chides me on that as well. She knows that I've got lures in my bass bag of tricks that go fishing with me. Some of them have never seen water. Some haven't been wet in 20 or 25 years, but they go with me every trip because you never know. The day will come and the sun will rise, and when that day I need that lure. So a lot of guys say, yeah, it's, Bud's got it. If we need it, Bud's got it. That is That is very, very cool to... To be prepared, you yeah, know, oh, yeah. and, and and that's one thing that uh, that I I had not heard that about you before, but that is really neat. Um, and when um, when you're out there and you're fishing, now I'm not going to give away your age because I think people can figure it out if you started well, with I'm the an club old guy. <laughs> but do you feel that you have gained or lost any of the ability to feel or know when the fish is is out there and it's it's pulling on that lure? No, they, I, I think I've learned even better. I've become, in recent years, I've become more of a line watcher. So I do believe in, in high visibility lines, especially when I'm finesse fishing. I want to be able to detect a bite, if you will, or a pickup or a touch or whatever we want to call it without being able to feel it. I want to be able to see it. So I've learned to do that much better than I ever did before. The only thing I'll say that slowed me down in my age 
is um, getting in and out of the boat, hopping from one deck to another the way we used to when we were younger. Now I find myself holding on to things with one hand to step in or step down or step up or whatever. But otherwise, physically, I, yeah, I'm still doing okay. But as far as the fishing is concerned, the, the detection of the strike or the bite or the feel, I think I've gotten better at that. I wow. think I can tell better now. Yeah. And little subtle bumps, I can tell. And have you, over the years of fishing, have you changed the kind of equipment, rod, reel, the weight that you use now over what you use? Now, I know they've improved and that type of thing, but there are some people out there who believe in a certain rod and reel, yeah. and they hang with that brand. But have you changed over the years on that? Mm. Yes and no. When 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 reels came along with with more ball bearings in them, for instance, conventional casting reels, mm -hmm. and I learned I could cast lighter lures with them and whatnot, I I joined the crowd and started using that kind of stuff. But I'll be honest with you, you've you can't see this on your podcast, but you came up to, upstairs to my tackle area in my house, and I've got over a hundred rods up here on display. I've got four hundred and some odd reels up here and whatnot. But if you look at the ones that I typically fish with out of all these rods and reels that are up here, the ones that have got reels on them with line up through the guides and whatnot that I use, some of those I've been using the same reels for more than 20 years now, and I still swear by them. So even though the manufacturers keep reinventing the wheel, and I try mm. some of them, I've still got some of my favorites that, that go back more years than that. Ah, so it's not... It's not like some things where just because it's new, yeah. I need one. Yeah. And, and there was a question that I wanted to ask, which I am not this way, but I, I know people that are. And there's a lot of gimmicks that come out, oh, a yeah. lot of funny lures and a lot of things. Have you tried those over the years to see oh, what yeah. they would do? Yeah. You know, the light on them or the um, something. I've got some with neon flashers in them, and I've got, yeah, some that that uh, have a battery in them and light eyes that blink on and off and it's it's all it's gimmickry yeah yeah gimmickry. And, and so but you, you know there's still I look back I look back in some of my tackle boxes and I know these lures will still catch fish I've got lures that I used in the 40s 1940s and 50s names that a lot of young people today would not be familiar with Creek Chub Head Shakespeare, South Bend, so forth, when they were in the lure manufacturing business. Things like the Head and River Runt, the Head and Mouse, the Creek Chub Darter, Creek Chub Plunker. I have them all. They haven't been made for years and years and years, and yet, I'll guarantee you, they will catch as many fish today as they did back in the 40s and 50s. In other words, there, there's a there's a timeless endless life expectancy to them. They were they were made by artisans back when, they're all out of cedar for the most part, hand-carved wood and so forth, glass eyes in some of them, and they imparted an action that was attractive to bass then, and a bass is a bass is a bass is a bass. So if he ate a frog back then, he'll eat a frog today too. So yeah. That's very, very interesting. I had not even considered you know, although I have some older lures uh, that I do throw on occasion just because I know they work. And I yeah. think people go to the trusted, uh, yeah. uh, their trusted bait. And, you know, there's one subject that has come up in the club lately, and I'm, I'm going to throw it out there just because we're here and we can talk about it. 
the Ned rig came around in the 50s. Yeah. And now it's kind of coming, making a comeback. Yeah. Have you seen other uh, rigs like that uh, that have come back and you went, yeah, yeah, I've already seen this before? Yeah, I'm thinking, as far as plastics are concerned, I'm thinking of the, um, and, and they're still around. You don't hear much about them anymore, but 30 years ago I started using them. A thing called a Charlie Brewer slider, slider worm. And uh, if, if you use Charlie Brewer sliders today, I can almost guarantee you, you will catch as many fish today as we did 30 years ago on those things. And a lot of people, you mentioned to them, they don't even know what a Charlie Brewer slider is. So I did a, a little off the subject in a way, I did a seminar or an in-store promo at Fisherman's Marine Supply one time in the basement down in Oregon City. We were talking about Hag Lake, fishing Hag Lake. I had a good turnout. A lot of people showed up. Want to know how to catch fish at Hag Lake. And of course, my my specialty was the bass and panfish. I didn't care about them trout. So we're talking about it. And I told people, I said, if you never caught one, you don't have a boat, you want to just fish from the bank, I can almost guarantee you, if you want to catch a bass, and I'm sure they stock them here in the store upstairs, you go up there and tell and I had something for show and tell. I said, you want to buy a thing called a Charlie Brewer slider, and you want a spider slider head with it, and here's how you rig it. And I showed them how to pass it around the audience and whatnot. And I said, it's a do-nothing operation. You throw it out into the water, and it'll start to sink. And you put your reel in gear, spinning reel, for instance. You put it in gear. And the object is to watch the line from where it leaves your rod tip down to where it enters the water. And there'll be a little tiny of a belly in it. Just a freak of nature, that's what happens, the weight of the line. But the lure is sinking. You want to reel slow enough to try to reel that belly out. And, of course, you never will be able to. But you think to yourself, I'm going to just try to get that to go straight. And it's following this thing, falling down through the water column like this. And I said, I can almost guarantee you people, if you try that, let the people here at the store know that you tried it, and you'll catch some bass. So to make a long story short, a guy by named Robert Campbell is the manager down there. He hired me. Well, he not, they didn't pay me to do a volunteer thing. I'd come every spring. I'd do a thing for him at that store. After that particular one, he called me again about the following year, and he says, you know that when you talk to those people about the damn things called a slider? He says, we sold everyone we had on the pegboard up there. And he says, I got people coming back looking for more because they're catching bass with them. So and that's one of those things that, you know, that's a long story, but... It, it's one of those kind of things that that I learned back when. To this day, it would still work. I still carry a lot of them with me. I still use them. And if you don't know what it is, I'll show you when we end this. All right. No, I, I have to admit, I, I do not know what it is, but I'm sure you'll show me. Um, and, you know, now we're we're kind of going forward a little bit. Yeah. And how, how long do you plan to, to keep... I mean, as long as you're active, you're going to keep fishing? Or are, is there going to be a point where you say, hey, you know what, I think I need to slow down a little bit? Well, I, I, I think physically, I feel okay. Physically, I, th I think I am slowing down a little bit, but I find myself wondering now how long I can continue to handle the boat the way I do. Not so much once I'm in the water, 
but getting it from the garage onto the car over and launching it and so on and so on. I'm still capable of doing that, but as I said earlier, I'm 83 years old now, and I would like to think I'm going to live a little longer, but we never know. So, yeah, I'm going to still try to continue, but I'm going to do also rely more and more on some of my friends to invite me along in their boats. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've, we've spent a, a good bit of time here talking about the club again, and uh, as we kind of close out this conversation, where would you like to see the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club go? Here we are in 2020. We're, you know, we're in the next, uh, uh, we're in the 21st century, and we've already made it through 20 years of it. Where would you like to see it go? Well, I'd like to see us continue to grow, membership anyway. Not that we really need that many members. Financially, I think we're in pretty good shape as far as nonprofit organizations go. We don't have any wolves at the door, so to speak. But I would like to see us continue onward and upward with our educational aspects. I would like to see the club get deeper and deeper involved in the when to, where to, how to thing and get people interested in what we do. What, Not what we do, but what kind of fish we fish for and how to do that. To me, that's, that's going to... Because that way, if we get more and more people doing it and talking about it, whether they're club members or not, it's going to have an impact on the overall fishery here in the state of Oregon. Well, I think uh, I don't think I could have said that any better. I think it comes from... Uh, someone who has been a member for more than 60 years now and even all, all the uh, interview that we've done and you continue to talk about the training and teaching and showing people where to fish right. and, I, and I hope that we do carry that forward indefinitely Yes. Uh, and again I'd like to thank you for spending the time with me and uh, I hope that everyone who gets to listen to these podcasts enjoys a, a history lesson really so, again, Bud, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd like to thank Bud Hartman one more time for coming by and giving us a bit of a history lesson. That show will be in the archives, and you will always be able to go back and listen to it. And it was uh, great to hear some of his stories. Of course, we're going to try to have Bud on a couple more times uh, so that he can kind of finish up the history of the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club as we're going forward. For show ideas or feedback, email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. For any other uh, information that you'd need, please uh, use that same email address and give me a a shout-out. Check us out on Facebook. We are there on Talking Bass and PDX on the fan page. Tell your friends about the podcast, and if you enjoyed what you heard, let your friends know how you found the podcast. I would like to thank everybody. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX. I'll see you on the backcast. Mm-hmm.